Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes descriptions of drug trafficking, domestic abuse, suicidal ideation, violence, and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. June giggled as she covered her eyes and counted to ten. But once she reached five, she peered through her fingers. She could see Mei Ling heading toward the Chow Nei No. 81, a creepy old house in their Beijing neighborhood. June knew that it was cheating to peek, but Mei Ling wasn't playing fair either. She wasn't supposed to go near the abandoned mansion. June was just leveling the playing field. June followed Mei Ling, climbing over the mansion's cement wall and dropping into the overgrown yard on the other side. Kids always told stories about this house. They claimed it was haunted, and anyone who went inside disappeared. But June wasn't afraid of ghosts. She wasn't afraid of anything. Even though the owners had boarded up the place, she spotted an opening where someone had wrenched away the wood. June hoisted herself through the hole and climbed inside. She smiled when she saw Pink Bo sitting in the cobwebbed doorway. Mei Ling was here. June turned as she heard a clatter coming from an open door beneath the stairs. As she walked toward it, she suddenly heard a voice yell for help. June's pulse quickened. It was Mei Ling. She raced to the door in time to hear a blood-curdling scream echoing from the basement. June leaped down the stairs and onto the dirt floor, frantically looking for a light switch. Finally, she pulled on a chain, and a single bare bulb illuminated the room. But it was empty. Mei Ling was gone. Welcome to Haunted Places, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. This week, join me on a supernatural journey deep within the noisy streets of Beijing to the abandoned mansion of Chow Nei No. 81 and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. Coming up, Chow Nei No. 81 claims its first victim. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Chowne No. 81 was once a magnificent French Baroque mansion that boasted frosted windows, stone balconies, and beautifully carved wooden balustrades. There are few records of its construction, but most sources agree that it was built in the early 1900s. 
Some believe it was built by the Qing imperial family, while other stories claim it was first used as a language school where missionaries taught Mandarin to foreigners. Missions in early 20th century China were notoriously unpopular. During this time, the previously inaccessible Chinese countryside had been open to missions due to the opium trade of the 1800s. The sudden flood of narcotics caused widespread addiction among the Chinese people, thus leaving them vulnerable to Western influence, including Christian missionaries. The school at Chaonei No. 81 is one of the many that popped up in the early 1900s. However, like other missions, its ties to the British government, and thus the opium trade, may have spurred a backlash among locals. In all likelihood, the mission school at Chaonei No. 81 only operated for a few years before it was abandoned. Over the decades, the mansion grew more and more dilapidated. Ivy crept up the stone columns and in through the broken windows. The polished staircases splintered, and the yard grew into an unruly jungle of weeds. Corruption took hold and turned the place into an empty relic. But of course, Chaonei No. 81 wasn't empty. Something still walked through its once-gilded hallways, something with its own twisted moral code. It watched and waited for the day when it could unleash its terrible justice. Xing's heart pounded as he slipped into the basement. He shut the door and paused for a moment, listening intently. Father Lyons, the school director, was looking for someone to clean the roof. If he saw Xing, then Xing knew he would be up there all day. The other servants refused to obey Father Lyons' more eccentric commands, but Xing struggled to do the same. He knew that hard work built character. Father Lyons taught him that. Even so, Xing had already cleaned the roof twice this month. Xing headed down the stairs and collapsed into an old wooden chair. Father Lyons wasn't always a kind man, but Xing knew he was a good one. The priest took him in as a boy. He'd given Xing food and a place to sleep. But more importantly, he'd taught him discipline. Xing knew that many of the servants of the city earned more than room and board. But the language school didn't have much money. Father Lyons fed the poor and cared for the sick. Xing had a comfortable life, and it was nice to know he worked for an upstanding man. Xing tilted his chair backward, resting it against the bamboo bookshelf behind him. But as he shifted his weight, the chair suddenly slipped, crashing to the ground. Xing went tumbling to the floor, kicking up a cloud of dust. But before he picked himself up, he spotted something sitting low behind the bookshelf. Something in the wall behind it. Xing frowned. He thought he knew every inch of this place, but he'd never noticed it before. He pushed the shelf aside and revealed a small door. Xing's pulse quickened. He'd heard rumors about secret rooms beneath the basement. One of the other servants once told him that a corrupt nobleman was buried down here. Supposedly, the man was an imperial accountant who stole money from the royal family. No one learned of the theft until after the accountant had died, but the emperor wanted to make an example of him to show that a man could be punished even in death. The emperor sealed the accountant's tomb and built Chaonei No. 81 on top of it so that the nobleman's family couldn't place offerings at his grave. Xing knew that this was just a silly story but he couldn't help feeling a shiver of anxiety as he turned the doorknob. The door creaked open, 
revealing a large chamber. Xing peered into the shadows, and for a moment, his heart stopped. Someone was standing in the middle of the room. A cold sweat broke out of the back of Xing's neck. He fumbled for a candle stub in his pocket and lit it with a trembling hand. He breathed a sigh of relief. It was just a statue. A stone man in a long sweeping robe stood with his arms outstretched in front of an enormous granite tomb. Xing examined the carvings on the stone pedestal beneath the statue's feet. Most of the words had faded, but he could read the man's name, Sun Fujian, and the year he died, 1857, one year before they built the school. Maybe the rumors really were true. Xing glanced around the room and noticed a new wooden crate in the corner. He tentatively pulled the lid aside, and his pulse raced. It was filled with a sticky brown substance. Xing recognized the bitter smell of opium. Suddenly, Xing heard footsteps behind him. He frantically looked around and spotted another doorway leading to a long, dark corridor. Xing slipped inside and disappeared into the shadows, just as two men entered the secret room. One of them lit a lantern, and Xing stifled a gasp. It was Father Lyons and another priest from the school. Father Lyons bent over the crate, commenting that this shipment was bigger than the last one. The other priest nodded and said it would probably take a while to unload it. Father Lyons laughed and told him not to worry. These days, you could sell it by the pound. All you had to do was bring it to the neighborhood on the other side of the tunnel. They'd sell it in no time. The two men chuckled as they turned back to the basement. Xing sank down against the wall. Father Lyons had always preached against the evils of opium. He said that greed fueled the sinful opium dens in the city. Xing supposed he was right. He just never knew that Father Lyons was the true greedy one. Xing felt anger boil in his chest. After all these years, Father Lyons told him hard work and patience were the keys to salvation. So Xing cleaned the outhouses, scraped excrement off the roof, and walked Father Lyons' monstrous black Rottweiler. He'd done it because Father Lyons taught him the value of hard work. But the priest had been taking the easy way out this whole time. Xing had to follow the rules while he did what he wanted. Xing went back to the crate and stared at the sticky brown mass inside. This much opium would be worth a fortune. He could sell it to the nearest opium den and be done with Father Lyons forever. He reached toward the crate, then stopped when he heard a strange sound, like two stones scraping together. Xing glanced behind him. There was no one there, but something seemed different. He frowned as he examined Sun Fujian's statue. Hadn't it been holding its arms out just a moment ago? Now they hung by Fujian's sides. Xing shook his head and sighed. He was being paranoid, probably because he was feeling guilty. He knew opium destroyed people's lives. If he sold it, didn't that make him just as bad as Father Lyons? But then, Xing thought about what Father Lyons said to the other priest. They were going to take it out to the neighborhood. If Xing didn't sell the stuff, then someone else would. Xing heaved the crate down the corridor. He just had to get it to the end of the tunnel, and then he'd be free. After what felt like hours, he finally spotted a crack of light at the end of the passage. His blood ran cold. 
A figure stood there, silhouetted by the narrow strip of daylight. Shing walked closer, and a stony gray face came into focus. It was the statue of Sun Fujian from the tomb. At first, Shing didn't understand. Then, the statue stepped forward. Shing's breath caught in his throat. He turned to run, but tripped over the crate and went sprawling in the dirt. He scrambled to get up, but it was too late. Hard stone hands closed around his throat. His vision blurred and narrowed. The last thing he saw was the stone face of the statue, smiling down at him serenely. Rumors of mysterious disappearances have haunted Chowney Number 81 from its inception. Some say that the priest who ordered its construction vanished before he completed it. When the builders looked for him, they supposedly discovered a crypt and a secret tunnel underneath the house leading to a nearby housing complex. No one ever found the priest, but his disappearance wasn't the last. For decades after, there were whispers in the streets of Beijing that once you step foot in Chowney number 81, you may never re-emerge. The reason behind these rumored disappearances is unclear. But perhaps something lingers in the house's halls that wishes to guard the place from more corruption. A spirit with its own twisted sense of justice. And if you aren't careful, that justice could be lethal. Coming up, the mansion becomes a prison and a tomb. Imagine living with a secret so big that if anyone ever found out, it would change everything. Imagine carrying that secret with you every day, desperate to one day get it off your chest. Do you think you could take a secret like that to the grave? I'm Estefania Hageman, host of the new podcast series, Deathbed Confessions, the show where we dive deep into the most explosive things people have admitted to while drawing their last breath. From murder, fake identities, heists, illicit affairs, and even top government secrets. This season on Deathbed Confessions, we investigate cases like Frank Thorogood, the construction worker who claimed that the drowning of Rolling Stones founder Brian Jones was no accident. Margaret Gibson, a silent film actress who, while dying of a heart attack, confessed to one of the most famous unsolved crimes in Hollywood history. And ex-CIA officer Howard Hunt, who on his deathbed confessed to playing a role in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes weekly starting July 21st. Follow and listen to Deathbed Confessions for free on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. One of Chowne number 81's most famous stories occurred in January 1949, 
At the time, the Chinese Nationalist Party, or the Kuomintang, were losing the civil war, and their enemies, the communists, had surrounded Beijing. For years, members of the Kuomintang had secretly moved gold and priceless artifacts from the imperial palace in Beijing to the island of Taiwan. The Kuomintang planned to use these treasures to financially support their government in exile. So, as their commander-in-chief negotiated their surrender, the elite members of the Kuomintang fled to Taiwan, escaping with the last of their riches. But the rest of the Kuomintang weren't so lucky. When the communists marched into Beijing, the remaining Kuomintang frantically searched for an escape. But for many, it was already too late. Fen giggled as her husband carried her across the threshold of their new home. She told him to put her down. Didn't he know that was only for newlyweds? Chung chuckled and said that with her, every day felt like a honeymoon. Fen sighed happily. Seven years ago, she made the best decision of her life when she married the handsome Kuomintang captain. Soon, he went from captain to colonel. Then, after winning a decisive victory against the communists, he became a general. Now they were moving into her dream home. Fen had passed Chowne number 81 a thousand times as a girl. The land had once belonged to her own family. Of course, that was before her great-great-grandfather, Sun Fujin, stole money from the emperor. After that, the Sun family lost their land and titles. Fen's grandfather pledged that no son would ever steal again. Now, Fen hoped that she and her husband had restored the family reputation. As long as she lived in the house, she would ensure it was never soiled again. Fen wandered through the grand entryway, marveling at the crystal chandelier and the delicately carved mahogany railings. She frowned, noticing a narrow doorway underneath the staircase. Something about it looked out of place. Fen cracked it open and saw a flight of steps. She followed them down to a small basement. The room was mostly bare, except for a bamboo bookshelf in a corner. Behind the empty shelves, Fen spotted something else. Something was hidden behind it. She pushed the shelf aside to reveal a small door. Fen reached for the knob, but as soon as she touched it, her hair stood on end. She suddenly had the feeling that something bad lurked behind that door. Opening it would change her in a way she could never come back from. She told herself she was being silly. Then, she turned the doorknob. But as soon as she opened it, a low moan came from behind the darkened room beyond. Ben's blood ran cold. She pushed the bookshelf back in front of the door and fled up the stairs. Back in the sunlit sitting room, Fen tried to convince herself that the moan had been her imagination. But just to be safe, she promised herself she'd never go into the basement again. And for the next 12 years, Fen kept her word. Fen opened her eyes and looked at the clock. She groaned. It was only eight. All she wanted was a cigarette, but Chung wouldn't leave the house until nine. Fen took up smoking when she first moved into the house, but she'd hidden it from Chung because he thought it was unladylike. She'd kept it up for 12 years, until yesterday when he found her smoking in the courtyard. Once he saw her, Chung snatched the pack out of her hand and said that he would destroy it. But Fen knew him better than that. 
He was too cheap to throw away perfectly good cigarettes. So she made a plan. Once he left, she was going to sneak into his office and find them. Her marriage started going wrong the same day they moved into the house. As much as she wanted to live in Chowne No. 81, something about the place felt off. It was always cold, and she couldn't shake the feeling that someone was watching her. She had trouble sleeping and became jumpy and suspicious. Chung would never admit it, but she knew that the house affected him, too. He was always angry, and eventually he took it out on her. At first, it was little things. If her hair was out of place or if there was a stain on her dress, he would act embarrassed. He said that when she didn't look presentable, it reflected poorly on him. Then he moved on to her weight. He told her to diet and squeezed her arm when she reached for an extra pork bun at dinner. Fen hoped that a child might change things, but a child never came. She turned 30 and then 40. Chung stopped touching her. After so many years in this house, he never told her she was beautiful anymore. And as the nationalist Kuomintang struggled, Chung went from apathy to cruelty. He'd come home in a rage, furious about losing a battle. He'd find something to blame Fen for and smack her across the face. But Fen didn't dare to leave. Every day the communists marched closer to victory, the more she needed him. The Kuomintang government planned to flee to Taiwan, and Chung had been setting up the new economy there. He had coordinated transporting hundreds of pounds of gold and valuables to the island. He said that soon, Taiwan's economy would be twice as strong as mainland China's. As long as she stayed with him, Fen had a ticket there. If she left, her future looked a lot darker. The ex-wife of a high-ranking Kuomintang official wouldn't do well in communist China. As soon as Fen heard Chung's car start, she ran to his study and made a beeline for the teak writing desk. She rifled through his drawers until she came to a large one she couldn't open. It was locked. She jammed a hairpin into the keyhole until she heard a click. Fen pulled the drawer open, and her jaw dropped. Her cigarettes were in there all right, but they sat on top of a pile of priceless treasures. There were jade figurines, vases of fine porcelain, and bronze vessels that could have been several hundred years old. As she picked up a brass pedestal set with precious stones, she realized something. These treasures were supposed to travel to Taiwan months ago, but Chung had kept them for himself. Fen's thoughts raced. This could be her way out. If anyone found out about the stolen valuables, it would ruin Chung's career and maybe even their escape from the mainland. There would be no place for him in China or Taiwan. She could take the treasure and flee, but first she would need a place to hide it. Fen frowned as a thought occurred to her. The basement. Chung didn't like that part of the house either, and that secret room behind the bookshelf was probably the only place in the house he didn't know about. Fen took a deep breath. She had to go back to the basement. Then stuffed the artifacts into a canvas sack, grabbed a lantern, and headed for the stairs. As she reached the bottom of the steps, she was surprised to see that after 12 years, the basement had remained unchanged. The old bamboo bookcase still sat in the corner, and when she pushed, it easily moved aside. 
She turned the knob of the hidden door, and it creaked open, just like she remembered. Fen hesitated for a moment. Then, she stepped into the dark. She held the lantern aloft and shrieked. A man stood in front of her. Fen froze. Then, she realized that the man wasn't a man at all. It was a statue. She held the light up to it, and her breath caught. The name inscribed beneath its feet was Sun Fujian. She was in her great-great-grandfather's legendary crypt. Maybe this explained all the strange feelings she had in the house, that sense that someone was watching her. Maybe all this time, it was her ancestor looking after her. As soon as Chung came home that evening, Fen leaped to her feet and demanded that they talk. Chung snapped that this was not the time. They had more important things to worry about. Fen smiled and held up a gold bar, a piece she'd saved from the desk. Chung's face fell as Fen told him it was too late. She'd hidden his stash somewhere he would never find it. She was leaving him to start a new life. If he didn't make trouble, then no one would ever know what he'd done. He could keep his job, his life, everything but her, and of course the money. For a moment, Chung didn't say anything. Then to her surprise, he nodded gravely. He told her that the communists were marching toward the city. That's why he'd been in such a hurry. The last plane for Taiwan would leave tomorrow morning. Fen's heart leaped. In less than 24 hours, she would be rid of him. She went upstairs to pack. After a few hours, Fen brought her suitcases into the hall and called for her husband. But there was no reply. Fen flung open the door to his room. Drawers hung open and clothes were strewn about. But Chung was gone. Fen's throat went dry. Something was very wrong. Just then, a small voice called out behind her. She spun around to see a servant girl standing in the doorway. The girl said the Red Soldiers were inside the city, and they'd soon have the house surrounded. Chung had ordered the servants to leave hours ago, but she felt guilty. She came back to warn Fen. Suddenly, Fen understood why Chung accepted her proposition. He wouldn't have to worry about her ratting him out if he left her here to die. Fen told the girl to flee, then stepped out onto the balcony. She was going to enjoy her one last smoke before oblivion. By the time Fen finished her cigarette, she could see red soldiers marching toward the house. She went downstairs, took a knife from the kitchen, and walked down the basement steps. If she was going out, she was doing it on her terms. Fen pushed the bookshelf aside and entered the crypt. She climbed atop the granite tomb and held the lantern aloft, taking one last look around. That was when she finally saw the tunnel on the other side of the room. Then dropped the knife. Maybe it wasn't too late. If she escaped through the tunnel, she could still sell the treasures to leave China. She could still be free. Then she hesitated. Standing before her was the statue of Sun Fujian. Ben took in his outstretched arms and the somber expression on his cold stone face. There, in the presence of her ancestor, she couldn't help but think about the family promise not to steal. How could she bring the same shame on her family again? Fen shook her head. No, Chung was the thief, 
He had already stolen these things, and now she needed them to escape. She was choosing life over death. There was nothing shameful in that. Then leaped down, grabbed the treasure, and ran to the far side of the crypt. She stepped into the tunnel when she heard a sound behind her, then spun around. At first, she didn't see anything. Then, her blood froze. The statue of Sun Fujian had moved. Now it was standing mere feet away, and it was holding her knife. The statue took a step forward, then screamed as the knife flew toward her. Suddenly, she felt a sharp pain in her abdomen. She collapsed to the ground, struggling against her attacker, but her fists landed uselessly against the statue's cold stone body. The blade stabbed her again and again. Then, it stopped. Blood bubbled up in Fen's mouth as she looked up at the statue's somber face. Then, she drifted into blackness. Sun Fu Zhen stood above Fen, watching the life drain from her eyes. When she was finally still, he knelt down and pressed the still-bloodied knife into her palm. Then he gently closed her fingers around the hilt. His stone face smiled with bitter pride. He had done his great-great-granddaughter a service. He'd saved her from making the same mistake he had long ago, saved her from tarnishing the Sun family's honor. But now, no one had to know Fen was a thief. Instead, she would be a martyr. According to legend, in 1949, Chao Ne No. 81 was occupied by a Kuomintang official and his wife. Their marriage had grown sour, and on the eve of the communist victory, when the Kuomintang fled to Taiwan, the official left his wife behind to fend for herself against the coming invasion. But ultimately, rather than face the communists, the woman took her own life. In the years after, nearby residents have often reported hearing her cries echo through the house. Though journalists often repeat this story, the truth is there are no records of a Kuomintang official ever living at the house. So if the cries don't belong to the official's wife, whose are they? Coming up, we meet the murderous spirit haunting Chowne number 81. Now back to the story. During the Chinese Cultural Revolution of the 1960s and 70s, Chowne No. 81 housed the Red Guards, a student-led militia that roamed the city punishing dissidents. According to local legend, something frightened the youths so severely that they fled their new quarters never to return. For decades after, the mansion fell into further disrepair until 2014, when a horror film based on the place called The House That Never Dies became a hit. Crowds of tourists flocked to see the notorious haunted house, and before long, its growing infamy spurred the owners to finally renovate the building. In 2017, Chowne No. 81 became rentable office space. The hubbub died down after the mansion filled with ordinary business people. To a casual observer today, there's nothing too unusual about the grand old house. But of course, appearances can be deceiving. Thank you. 
The first car Sun Fu Zhen ever saw had terrified him. But in the past hundred years, he'd gotten used to things. Now he didn't even jump when a beat-up silver Nissan backfired as it pulled into the driveway at Chowne number 81. Fu Zhen glanced at the clock above the doorway as a young man climbed out. 8 a.m., right on time. The young man's name was Li. He'd only worked at the firm for around six months, but Fu Zhen had a feeling about this one. Fu Zhen had spent the better part of two centuries at Chowne number 81. Since he was interred there, he often wandered away from his crypt in the tunnels below and passed his days roaming the mansion and observing its many occupants. Most of them were a disappointment, corrupt and undisciplined, but Lee was different. The young man was well-dressed, but not ostentatious, handsome, but not vain, and most importantly, he always followed the rules. Fu Zhen followed Li up to Song Financial on the second floor. As always, Li sat down to read the letters that his boss, Mr. Chen, received on the device he called a computer. Next, Li watered the plants and set out a few treats for Mr. Chen's dog. When 10 a.m. rolled around, Li left to fetch Mr. Chen's breakfast. He arranged it carefully on the desk with the morning paper and a steaming cup of green tea. Then he sat and waited patiently for his boss to arrive. Mr. Chen was an oily man with a pot belly and thinning hair. Fu Zhen hated him. Unlike Li, he was not punctual or thoughtful, and he had no regard for rules. Truthfully, Mr. Chen reminded Fu Zhen of the man he'd been when he was alive, but Fu Zhen had changed so much since then. These days, he helped people. When Mr. Chen arrived, he knocked his breakfast aside and poured his tea out on the carpet. He yelled that Li needed to get him another, properly hot this time. He berated Li for not correctly anticipating when he would arrive. Li apologized with all the grace of an imperial courtier. Then he went to fetch another cup. Fu Zhen supposed that not every member of the imperial court was as graceful as Li. He certainly hadn't been. Back then, he'd believed that everyone was as corrupt as he was. Of course, he'd paid a terrible price for that. Mr. Chen spent most of the morning screaming at Li for one reason or another. Li accepted the abuse with poise and composure. But when Mr. Chen left for lunch, he cried for 10 minutes in the bathroom. Fu Zhen tried to pat Li on the back, but it only made the young man uncomfortable. When he felt Fu Zhen's invisible palm, he flinched in fright and fled the bathroom. When Li got back to his desk, he opened another letter from Mr. Chen on his computer. Mr. Chen was angry that Li hadn't given him the correct files. Li's face went red as he hurried to Mr. Chen's office. When he reached the doorway, he froze. On Mr. Chen's desk, there was a line of brown-colored powder and a rolled-up banknote. Fu Zhen's eyes widened. There was a lot he didn't understand about the modern world, but he knew opium when he saw it. Li's face had gone white. He looked away from the drugs, opened one of the desk drawers, and quickly rifled through the files. Fu Zhen grinned. Anyone else might have tried to use the opium to blackmail Mr. Chen. Not Li. Li followed the rules, which was why Fu Zhen liked him. As Li thumbed through the papers, one in particular caught his eye. He pulled it out and Fu Zhen read it over his shoulder. It was a copy of the recommendation letter Mr. Chen had written for Li. 
It said Lee was incompetent, frequently late, and consistently disrespectful. The letter went on, but before Fujian could finish reading it, Lee crumpled it up and threw it into a corner. Lee looked back at the powder on the table and glanced up at the office. Empty. Then he pulled out a small square glass, which Fujian had learned was a telephone. Lee used the phone to take a picture of the powder. Fujian shook his head. This couldn't be happening. He thought Lee was the one, the one good person in a sea of rule-breaking corruption. He'd been disappointed so many times before. He didn't know if he could do it again. Lee pulled out the phone and started writing a letter to Mr. Chen. It said they needed to talk about changing Lee's recommendation. A tear brimmed in Fujian's eye. The boy was almost gone. He had to get Lee down to the basement to help him before it was too late. Fujian concentrated, trying to send an image to Lee's mind. The basement was a safe place where he could stash the photograph. Lee pulled out his computer and the picture of the brown powder appeared on the screen. He pressed a button and a hard copy of the photograph emerged from a machine in the corner of the office. Lee grabbed it and started down the stairs. Fujian smiled. Lee was following the plan. Now Fujian just had to make sure he found the crypt. It took everything Fujian had to move the rotting bamboo bookshelf just a few inches, but it was enough. As soon as Lee stepped into the basement, he noticed the door peeking out from behind the shelf. He pushed the bookshelf aside, put his hand on the knob, and turned. As soon as the door opened, Fujian felt himself taking on corporeal form. In an instant, his once intangible body was transformed into cool granite as he took possession of his own statue. From his place on the stone pedestal, Fujian watched Lee intently as the young man looked around the room. He had wanted Lee to live a good life on his own, but some people just needed help. He had helped so many in his time here. There had been a boy who was about to throw away a lifetime of obedient servitude to sell stolen drugs. And then there was his own great-great-granddaughter. Such a lovely girl, such a good wife, and yet she was going to pawn the Empire's treasures. He had taken them out of this world before they could spoil their lives. Now he would help Lee the same way. As Fu Zhen took a step, Lee spun around, and his eyes went wide. He tried to run, but Fu Zhen caught him. His stone hands closed around the boy's throat and squeezed. Lee's face went blue, and the blood vessels in his eyes popped, turning his gaze red. Fu Zhen smiled serenely down at Lee as he suffocated and whispered a reassurance. Do not worry. Now you'll be honorable forever. Chaune No. 81 has stood in the center of Beijing since the early 1900s. It's seen wars, coups, revolutions, and regime changes. Scheming, corruption, and a thousand petty human squabbles have passed through its walls. With so many deaths and disappearances having taken place inside the house, it's easy to imagine why the mansion may influence the lives of those who live there. Maybe after all those years bearing witness to human failures, the house has created its own system for passing judgments. 
one that is a little less human, a little less forgiving, and a little more terrifying. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legends series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Zoe and Louisa Lewis, with writing assistance by Molly Quinlan and Alex Garland. Fact-checking by Amber Hurley and research by Adriana Gomez. I'm Greg Polson.